and welcome back to another episode of MC You Need to Know. This is a podcast dedicated to the Marvel Cinematic Universe and everything you need to know. I'm Trey. And I'm Jude. Uh, how you been, Trey? I've been really well. Uh, we are in our, I think, fourth episode. And, uh, yeah, that's right, number four. Yeah, and I think uh, I think things are running smoothly. I'm really happy with the way this is coming out. Yeah, me too. Me too. I'm really, en- like we said the last one, I'm enjoying the rewatch. I noticed it came out uh, around this time, April 10th, 2015. So, you know, it's a nice five-year anniversary. It's It's almost funny how coincidental this is all coming together because we were, we were having to debate about whether or not this is where we should go uh, and find out this is near the anniversary and then on top of that I you're a little bit more informed on this arena but I think it isn't the rights to the Netflix shows reverting back to Marvel Studios here soon I think from the time we record this in a month maybe two months but it is super close right uh, well, yeah especially for this character um, in particular mm-hmm so yeah, it's it's kind of exciting how this is Daredevil's starting. This is more of a sad note, but I mean, even in 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 like pop culture entertainment, I've I've started seeing uh, news reports about Deborah Ann Wall, uh, the actress that plays Karen, who is starting to make news because she says she hasn't gotten any roles since Daredevil, which is a bummer. But still, the fact that Daredevil's back in the pop culture circulation is interesting. You know what? That is interesting because I saw. Did we talk about this? Because I saw the same no, thing. No. Yeah. Yeah. We haven't talked about it. Not on the podcast, at least. Yeah. Like she, uh, God, like when she even had some, I think on Twitter, some, um, some backing by her co-stars from Punisher, Vincent D'Orofano, you know, plays the Kingpin, John Bernthal plays Punisher, uh, Charlie Cox. I think they all said something about how wonderful it was to Mm -hmm. work with her. Um, and I think she was really open and and candid with another podcast talking about, uh, the struggles of her profession and, yeah, not getting and work. it's it's sad to hear because I mean I I mean I know we're only three episodes into the rewatch now, but I remember when my first watch, like I came away really liking her performance as Karen. Right, and I remember when she was cast as Karen, I was excited. I had, my wife and I we watched True Blood, and she was first time I saw her in that show, and I thought she did well in there as well. All right. With all that being said, though, we are here to discuss uh, episode three of season one of Daredevil. And this episode in particular is called Rabbit in a Snowstorm. Right away, the scene opens up in a bowling alley and it's kind of got this misdirection going on where we're introduced to this man who kind of seems like a happy-go-lucky guy uh, who just wants to play a game of, of bowling. And we quickly see that didn't go as planned. You know, here I found it interesting that they went with a flashback. Mm-hmm. It served its purpose. I don't think I liked it as much, uh, just because we had what between the first two episodes, four or five flashbacks. Oh yeah, four uh, or five that, just in episode two alone. <laughs> right, and those were done so well in building character, and this just seemed just to kind of have that jam gimmick. I was surprised that they went that way. Yeah, I really liked the choreography and and just how uh, fast it was. Uh, and, and taking oh, out most definitely, uh, especially. Even though we haven't been introduced to the guy's name yet, I'm going to go ahead and refer to him as Mr. Healy. This is a rewatch, so I'm assuming people know the name. Are you cool with I'd that? I hope so. Oh, yeah. I hope oh, so. Okay. So I, I that was one of the first takeaways that I had. Mr. Healy is a very formidable fighter. And, and not even in like a, you know, this is a strong guy, can take a punch, like, you know, rough and tough guy. He seemed methodical and trained. Yes, he did. He mm-hmm. did. He knew exactly what to do, how to get through the first two very quickly. Um you know, and one of the things I liked about that 
is when you think about, um, and we talked about this at the end of the last episode, right? Where he was fighting the, the guy with the knife and, and he was a formidable foe. And it seemed like mm-hmm. here there was this intentionality of ramping that foe up, right? Like here's, it's almost like leveling up as you think yeah. of in, in a game. The threats right? start to get a lot bigger. I did want to play off what you were talking about, the flashback, because um, I, I wrote down in my notes, does this scene feel superfluous? So for what we're talking about is, you know, Mr. Healy enters the gun, the bowling alley, he pulls a gun out on these guys, and then it immediately flashbacks to a scene where him and Turk Barrett are having a conversation about the gun jamming, and then it cuts back to present day where the gun jams. Unless this gets brought up again in the season, because I don't remember, it seemed so weird to do all that just for a joke. And as you said uh, in the first two episodes, how whenever we had flashbacks, they meant something and taught us something. This kind of just, like you said, nothing more than a laugh. Right. Um, I mean, we get Turk's name, right? Turk Barrett. We get his name. Uh, yeah, I, we could have. You could have accomplished the same yeah. thing without it. Um, this really isn't too deep of a note, but I do want to say I, I think it's no secret that I don't even know if this is something that it's beneficial or this is benefiting from being a second watch, or if this is something maybe we knew going into the episode. But as we've been kind of ramping up to Kingpin, I do like that this episode starts us off in a bowling alley. I thought that was kind of cool. No, that is cool. <laughs> I don't think I picked that up. Um, my, I mean, my only other note here was just um, afterwards, how calm he was. Clearly, he's not worried mm-hmm. from the very beginning. He goes, kneels down, hand behind his head. Like he had, there's a sense where he had no intention of getting out. Yeah. And it's it's a great way to start the episode because he's coming from so many different angles because this is our first time getting introduced to the character. He starts off being like super cordial. He's like, hey, I just want to play a game of, of a round of bowling. And then, of course, he gets very uh, aggressive and murders everybody in the, the bowling alley. And then he returns to that calm state and he ends the scene ends with, I want a lawyer. And you're kind of left guessing, like, who is this guy? Or is this another one of those scenarios where someone isn't fully aware of the actions that they, they have taken place kind of similar to Karen or, or what, but, um, right. Yeah. Right. It, it's, it's a, a real great way to set the character at the beginning. And from there, I think we stick with them, right? Uh, so from there after, cause the cuts the title sequence. And then after the title sequence, we come back and we see that Matt is sitting outside the church and he is joined by the father that we met in episode one when he was giving his confession. Yeah, I believe uh, Father Latham is his name. Father Latham, thank you. I missed that. I couldn't get it. I I was looking at the captions and it just kept saying Father. So yeah, it's no, good no, to no. know. Father, and I had it. Father Latham. I I was hoping to find that first name. Uh no first name by Peter McRobie. Robbie, M C R O B B I E is the actor. So I like that. In there, you forget that immediate connection. Like he says, "Oh, you're Jack Murdoch's son," and you can tell that Matt um, felt identified. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the the other time we saw him was in the confessional at the start of episode one. Yeah. And I mean, up until this point, how how reserved has Matt been with everybody? It's, like, I think the, the, the most vulnerable we've seen is when he was with Claire. And that was not by his choice because she was tending to his wounds. And then the other time is when he revealed his face mask to the kid. But for everyone else, he's always got this side that he's protecting that nobody knows about. And I think... The father, at least to him, is the one person who probably is the closest to knowing both sides of who Matt is. And I like how he almost immediately winces when the father recognizes him. Like, he's ready to go. Oh, yeah. Like, well, not only that, like, I, I wrote down, I, like, clearly 
the father knows. I think Father Latham knows. Mm-hmm. Well, you have that story about his dad, you know, and the boxer letting the devil out. Um, I, he says what in the at first episode? Uh, I'm here to confess something that I'm going to do. I, I think the father was kind of letting him know that he does know. Hmm. I didn't get that read. I, I was wondering if that was the case, but that's a that's a that's cool to know. Yeah, you know what? I don't know if I got that read the first time I watched the episode, but this time I definitely that's the way I took it. Mm-hmm. Well, it, I think it gets bolstered uh, and something we can call back to as we get into the episode, because this this does get called back to eventually. But I like that this scene does set up like the confidentiality between Matt and the father, like anything they say, you know, I think he says, doesn't he say like you can murder 10 people and I, I couldn't say anything about it? Yeah, he does. And, and Murdoch asked, um, that doesn't seem fair to you. And the priest just says, well, it is what it is, um, mm-hmm. which I liked that. um well, because we had this conversation last episode about justice and how it's you don't really, at least in this incarnation of Daredevil, you don't get that feeling of it's, um, oh, my dad's gone. And so I'm not going to go beat up everybody. Like there is that duality with them of like, what is the best way to fight justice? And also, I mean, we'll get this a little bit just to get ahead of myself in a couple of scenes. But just as there's that seal of the confession, right? Um, you have the attorney-client privilege mm-hmm. that I'll bring up again later. And so, you know, so to me, there was a little bit of that, does that seem fair to you and not being able to say anything? Yeah. Um, kind of hinted as well to that attorney-client privilege. Yeah. Uh, so from there, we get introduced to a very new character in the next scene. Uh, he's a man by the name of Ben Urick, who is a reporter for the local paper. Uh, the scene kind of is between him and an established connection that he has to the, I want to say the mafia. And it's their exchanges from there. Right away, I didn't think, I didn't realize he was a reporter until the dialogue came out, right? Towards mm-hmm. the end of that scene, it was like, when you wrote, you left my kids out of it. I appreciated that. Uh, otherwise, you do kind of get a feeling like he's a informant to a cop. Mm-hmm. I did like the kind of that Italian mobster trope. I mean, it it was interesting to me. It almost was like a De Niro sound alike. I do. One of the things that I found interesting about the scene, because, you know, they're having their exchanges of back and forth about how did did this man ever get named? Because I, I tried to, to catch it, but I didn't get a name. Did you? I don't think so. Okay, so I'm just going to call him. I can look on IMDb. Uh-huh. Um, but I did not get a name from the yeah. from the watch. So any I mean basically what I'm getting at here is like the mafia man has this kind of like like oh, you know, this view. I remember when we were younger, we would drive up and we we lived for this view. I find it interesting coming off last episode where you had Karen and Foggy displaying their reverence for the city. And we're seeing it again with both Ben and this mafia man, but this time there's almost a sense of like things have changed, like that the the reverence that they used to have is gone, and it gives this kind of feeling of um, impending doom. It, it does, and they have that sense of like uh, a new player's in town. Um, and what's interesting here is I felt like they did a good job of leading you to wonder: is that new player Daredevil, or are they referring to? Wesley Union allied the Russians, basically the group we saw um, at the construction site at the Mm -hmm. end of episode one, you know, um, which group were they referring to? Because in some sense, um, I felt like Ben was kind of talking about Daredevil while the other one was talking about uh, these other these other mob groups. Most definitely. I, I was a little confused about that, too. Because Ben specifically says, hey, I heard the Russians have a bee up their ass. And I think that is a clear cut reference to Daredevil. And then 
the mafia man has a line that is like it used to be whenever you killed a man you sent his wife flowers now and you you send the wife with him and that doesn't characterize daredevil at all so i, I immediately i was thinking of fisk right and which plays into Union, Allied, and Wesley. Yes, I I totally got that same read out of out of that conversation. But uh, I overall, I think my my favorite thing about this, and this is most definitely benefiting from having watched this before. I forgot how much I liked Ben, and I think this was such a great introduction to him. Specifically, the way, as you said, the mafia man's like, "Hey, every reporter in this town drug my name through the paper, included my kids." But you were the only one who didn't include my kids. Immediately, we get a sense of the kind of, um, I guess, the honor that Ben has when it comes to telling the story. Right. Um, well, and I have a note later, and I'll bring it up again. Uh, you get the sense of it that idealist, right? It's it's kind of that Matt Murdock justice side idealist. This is the right way to do things. You know, the truth will set you free, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You get that feeling from Ben. Then from there. Uh, we move back to the Nelson and Murdoch offices. Uh, we have Karen, Foggy, and Matt kind of having their playful banter back and forth. And then in comes none other than Wesley seeking legal advice from Nelson and Murdoch. Yes. Knock at the door. Wesley's there. In my note, Wesley is still awesome. So uh, when I, when I watch this, like I, I do multiple rewatches to get prepared for the podcast episode. And the way it always breaks down is the first watch is just kind of like stream of conscious notes. I just put, oh, my God, Wesley's already here. <laughs> like, I did not expect our protagonist to be teamed up with Wesley so quickly. Like, I had forgot about the way that played out. We know who Wesley is. Yep. And we know who Foggy and Matt are. But they don't know yet. You know, <laughs> and we know until you write. You very quickly have this, oh, crap, kind of moment. You do get that sense that Matt was very skeptical right, right up front. He definitely was. I mean, the the whole, I guess this is my week, word of the week again. The whole crux of the, the scene is Matt and Foggy, like you're getting a test of their characters about how uh, as they're finding out information from Wesley, what Wesley wants, like Foggy's all in because the money's really good. And, and Matt's just sitting there very reserved and kind of not giving in to the, the charms of Wesley. What I liked about this scene, too, is is you could see both sides. Right. You could see the foggy side of like they need money. They just had that conversation with Karen about paying her. And is she, you know, is her work for free? Clearly, she needs to get paid. They are in New York. Um, so you see like his side of it. But we also know Wesley. And so you see that skeptical side and you trust Murdoch and his super hearing and all that stuff mm-hmm. uh, to get the read on those people. I mean, it, it's almost I mean, we're coming back to the kind of same dilemma that Jack had is like what? What is the moral decision and what's the realistic decision? And I think it's cool we get to see the different representations of that question with Matt and Foggy. Right. Especially that once Wesley starts showing that he did his homework. Yes. Like he knows. I mean, because it served two purposes, right? That he did his homework. So we know Wesley as we keep gushing over Wesley is the real deal. Uh, but we also get their background. You know, kind of their accomplishments in college. and But then when he turns it right and brings up karen in terms of the clientele you know that they did a really good job of capturing that moment yeah i thought that was such a cheap shot too and it's amazing how he can go from being this very charismatic suave persona to on a dime just dialing in on the sinister side and and dropping that vile comment towards karen that immediately changes the atmosphere of the room right i i don't know and i wanted to ask you this question do you think wesley was trying to be intimidating or trying to show off 
So I, let me see. I think I had a note here too. It was something along the lines like, what a weird flex. Like, what was he trying to accomplish by doing that? Um, because if, if he, if he's just trying to be a jerk, it's not like he's going to end with having Matt and Foggy agree to what he wants, but I don't know exactly what he gains by showing that off. Like what, what bragging rights is that? Right. And I mean, it clearly shows again, he, he did his homework, mm-hmm. you know, um, and it clearly shows that I know you need the money and I know you don't have any clients. Um, but I'm just, like the facial expressions that he had, it was like kind of that, you said that sinister, I know this uh, look on his face. And then to apologize of like, I didn't mean to hurt anybody's feelings when you mm-hmm. clearly knew you're yeah. Wesley, you knew. Do you think it could be almost a reactionary thing from him? Like he kind of like led that flex out because he was getting frustrated with him. Or do you think it was intentional? I don't know. Let me think. Did he slip up? Because, I mean, if if I again, I know I've already seen this, but I don't remember specifically how everything plays out with Wesley. It would be nice to kind of like put a pin in this moment and and be able to reexamine whether or not this was a slip or if this was intentional. That might be something we have to come back to because mm-hmm. I could see that going either way. Yeah. You know, because he just seems very calculated, knows what he's doing to have slip ups like this. So eventually, uh, the the kind of the back and forth push and pull between Matt and Foggy ends with Wesley saying like, well, hey, you know, why don't you come try and review one of our cases? Uh, and then you can give your final decision. It's happening in 38 minutes. And I wanted to pull this out specifically because there's an exchange where Matt and Foggy are arguing because, like you said, Foggy knows they need the money. And Matt is protesting because he doesn't think it's the right thing to do. But Foggy says, you wouldn't care if you could see the zeros on this check. And Matt immediately reiterates yeah maybe you would if you could and i thought that was such a a really um kind of like how we zoned in on the it's not how you get hit it's how you get back up uh i think they're starting to kind of lay the 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 seeds for what the theme of this episode and potentially the next episode is about uh between this exchange right here right well i also like that it i mean it really shows something about their friendship the ability to have I don't even call it jabs because they were very pointed at each other of like, Hey, you're in the wrong. I'm in the right. No, you're in the wrong. I'm in the right. And your judgment's being clouded kind of a conversation that only really good friends can have very much. so, And, you know, and keep going. So after they're back and forth, eventually Wesley leaves, uh, Matt follows him out the door. And this is where we kind of get our first audio signature clue for Wesley, where Matt zones in on the ticking of his wristwatch, which I thought was a really great way to kind of identify him moving forward. Like you've, like you've said before, like that's the education that we get, like the ticking watch means Wesley. Uh, and he follows that out until he enters in a vehicle and we get finally after three episodes, our very first glimpse of Kingpin. Seriously? Yeah. Crap. No. Yeah. And uh, it was it was it was just his arm because uh, Wesley gets into the vehicle and he says something along the lines like, all right, it's done. And you can see uh, his his hand in, in the shot. And I don't know. I, I It's, again, a testament to Marvel's restraint of not like just giving you everything immediately. Even in the episode, we know he's coming. They're still holding it back slowly, well, which I think is cool. I'd say a testament not just to the restraint, but even getting me trained like i missed it and if you mentioned that cuff link and when they first showed him at the end they started with the cuff link yeah 
and I oof, that just completely I missed it. I, I this this is a note for future selves. I want to see if we can identify exactly what that cufflink is because I tried to look at it, but it, it didn't seem of anything specific to me. But I'd like to see if we can maybe de- deride some sort of meaning in that cufflink. Yeah, if it's I, like a symbol or something. It's been a while since I went through this whole season, uh-huh. so I can't. I don't remember if they bring back to that mm-hmm. in any significant way, or if that was a just this episode kind of thing. Mm-hmm. All right. From there, uh, our next scene in, includes Foggy. He's finally meeting with Mr. Healy, the man from the beginning of the episode, and he's interviewing him to kind of get a idea of whether or not they want to take this case. Right. And there was a huge red flag. Like, I'm surprised Foggy just didn't get up and walk out. You know, it was that it was he asked that question. Um, oh, how was it phrased? Basically, were you physically or verbally provoked? or whatever and and Healy stops and is like which sounds better and they think about it and he's like I was both you know <laughs> provoked it, or abused and it was just like how do you not get up and walk out right that moment right I mean it, Foggy is most definitely uncomfortable but I mean it's he's still sticking to that like man we really need the money for this but the way that Mr. Healy comes across so rehearsed adds to his like sociopathic tendency like he it's so unnerving like I was very uncomfortable in that scene yeah. Well, not only that, like you realize that connection between him and Wesley and just what they're getting themselves sucked into, uh, which is going completely against kind of that ideal. We're going to serve the little people kind of uh, desire of practicing law. So like you said, they, you know, they, they have been about defending the little people. It, it makes that heel turn for whenever Matt arrives and decides to take the case uh, that much jarring and we kind of get to see how far Matt's willing to go morally just to get what he needs which plays into how cool of a narrative device that they have that our our protagonist Matt is so unwittingly close to our main antagonist for the episode right well what I also find interesting about that we mentioned that first episode right that duality mm-hmm. the letting the devil out this yeah. idealist those two forms of justice um, and you see here because of that heel turn where Matt is kind of making decisions to benefit the devil. Clearly Foggy doesn't understand why the, the, that switch, which poor Foggy, by the way, like you said, like the kind of like punishment that only friends can take. I mean, Foggy had to listen to Matt protest for so much in the beginning scenes. And then here where Foggy finally starts to realize that like, Hey, maybe Matt was right. Matt's like, Nope, we're doing this. And he's just having to like, hold on for dear life with that whiplash. Right. Especially after the jab of like, Hey, if you couldn't see those zeros, you wouldn't be doing this. Uh, That's a, that's a pretty sharp jab to to then turn. No joke. So after that scene, uh, we get to join back with Ben who is in his office and we can hear him on the phone kind of discussing policy information and then enters in his editor to discuss uh, the current project that Ben's working on for the paper. Right. Um, I really like this scene. So you had a couple of things you mentioned. You get you get those insight on the insurance um, information. Um, you get a quick thing of like uh, about the crime uh, article he wrote. Uh, editor wants him to tell. Basically, the editor wants him to tell that story about the subway line. But I found really fascinating watching it now. Five years ago, 2015, they're debating about I'm a print media and we're trying to stay alive. And it's kind of this 
you know, internet news versus print media. If that show was made today, that conversation would be about fake news Mm -hmm. more so than this. And that's one of the things I really found interesting about that kind of interaction of what sells papers and what doesn't. It's such a great encapsulation of the time period that this came out in. Um, and I like, I mean, it kind of Ben's first scene. It's, it's that feeling of like out with the old in with the new, uh, there's, there is a passing of the torch with, with the way that the editor is kind of like, I don't know if glorifying is the right word, but he's like talking about how blogs are the new way that people are getting their information and they're doing everything they can just to stay afloat again with that impending sense of doom, uh, looming over him. Right. And that, that since the good old days of like, we used to write the hell out of the news, kind of the comments. Um, whereas, I, I mean, if I'm honest, uh, I mean, that, I think that's still relevant today, right? Cause mm-hmm. I, I don't read as much print as I used to, uh, when it comes to news. Uh, so even that conversation is still very relevant. And playing off that, like even, even Ben's conversation when he was on the phone, you know, he's having all these hoops that he's going through to kind of get extension on his coverage. And he has to, he finds out that he has to get a new form. And even the last line that he delivers, he's like, where do I get that form? Oh, on the internet. Like, it's just, it's, I don't know. I thought it was a, a really tight way that they were able to corral that information in. Right. Right. Uh, I do want to say we get, I believe our second MCU proper reference though. Did you catch it in the scene? Um, yes, maybe. If I would, I want to say it's it's the uh, headlines in the back. Yeah, yeah. We we got the uh, the battle of the New York cover in Ben's office, which is obviously a reference to what happens in the Avengers. Yeah, but that was neat. Yeah, no, no, yeah. I um, I I knew it was there, and I saw it at a glance. Um, I think I was just I found it fascinating, the size of his his office, like for for someone who was you know going to write the fluff piece. To have such a big office. Uh, I don't know why I fixated on that. (laughs) We didn't touch on it yet, but I do find it interesting how almost condescending his editor is kind of being to him as he's saying like, you know, that doesn't whatever you want to write doesn't sell papers anymore. This is what sells papers. We write this every year and it works. And you come away, you come away from that scene kind of not liking him, but I do like that they give him a little bit of saving grace as he's exiting the scene where he offers help to Ben with the insurance troubles. And I thought that was a great way to humanize him before we completely wrote him off as a terrible person. Right. I I do like that. They, that they showed that between that, that interaction between that, because you get this sense that they are friends, you know, um, beyond just coworkers. Mm -hmm. Which, which, hey, I mean, that, go ahead. I, I was just say, which adds some depth to characters when mm-hmm. you see that. And I mean, it's kind of a nice, uh, I don't want to say callback because we did that a lot last episode, but we see Matt and Foggy going at it and then we see these two going at it as well. So after that, we do get ourselves back into the inter- interrogation room with Mr. Healy, Matt and Foggy, and we kind of get Matt reiterating the attorney client privilege. Right. And I liked Healy's response, just like church, because mm-hmm. um, it, it put that and you could see it on Matt's face, the calm, you know, him remembering what he just said to Father Latham a couple of scenes ago. This does that seem fair to you? Uh, yeah. Kind of comment coming back into his face. I mean, because um, I mean, Matt is immediately taken back by it. Like he hears that comment and he kind of pauses. And I, I wanted to revisit that. I wanted to bring this up because you brought up the point that the father almost knows who he is. I hadn't gotten that read yet, but in this scene, it does kind of like, 
give that impression that Matt's starting to wonder how much the father knows. Right. Given how much this feels like the same um, scenario that we saw in that scene. Right. Well, if Matt is struggling with what is the best way to go about justice, right? The law or this vigilante way. And he's going to the father uh, or going to father Latham to try to justify that. And he gets that justification kind of thrown right back in his face. I mean, they went out of their way to show and the character Daredevil in the comic is Catholic. They go out of the way to show his Catholicity in this, these episodes so far. I mean, Matt Murdock should know what the seal of the confessional is and how that works. Right. Like that wasn't a surprise to him for Father Latham to say that, you know, as much as that doesn't seem fair comment had more to do with that duality of justice there, you know, so to have that line in particular was a really nice Mm -hmm. jab at Matt and that struggle between the two. I think another one of the things that I enjoyed about the scene as well is Matt, I think, is kind of trying to probe and figure out the exact relation between Mr. Healy and um, and Wesley. And I believe what uh, Healy keeps falling back on the science, like I just wanted a bowl. And Matt says something like, do you go bowling often? To which Mr. Healy replies, when the mood hits. The thing that I noted about this scene that or this particular moment was how it almost feels like Mr. Healy can't contain himself. Like he really enjoys what he does for Wesley or whoever. And it kind of continues to add to that that creepiness factor of him. And it, and it, and it, it we kind of get that sense that he's emboldened by what he's doing because he knows that he's backed by this these giant figureheads. Well, well, I have a note. It does make it seem like he's just playing. Like he, he like when he finally asks, turns the question on Matt. You know, Matt asks, "Are you afraid of what might happen?" And he says, "No." Or are you afraid of what might happen if we lose? And he says, "No." Are you afraid of what might happen if you lose? You know, and, and you get that sense that Healy was done playing, right? Like, like it was all just fun and games. And to that point, he's just like, okay, I've had enough. Yeah. Which, again, adds to that psychopathic mm-hmm. creepiness. And it, it's funny. I mean, we, we go from the previous scene where we see Ben jumping through all these hoops to try and play by the rules. And then we come over here where Healy is committing murder, knowing full well that he's backed by a system that's been rigged. I thought that was kind of cool contrasting scenes that they've got going on. Right. And then one of the things I found really fascinating going back to that friendship, Matt's willingness at this point to put foggy at risk, right. For the sake of daredevil is, yeah. Um, um, I'll, almost disturbing to me. It is. I mean, cause we get a scene, a, in a couple minutes I'll kind of jump ahead a little bit where Matt full fully admits like, I'm sorry, I wasn't taking you into consideration. Yeah. It, it almost feels like foggy's an afterthought to him sometimes. Right. Like, you know, I mean, they're partners. I mean, it's like you said, they get slightly ahead, but your partners, so your business partners, so you're not putting them thinking about them from a business partner perspective. Uh, but you also clearly have an idea of what this Mr. Healy is capable of. And, the harm's way you're willing to put foggy carrot, especially carrot, especially knowing making that connection between him and Wesley and Wesley having that homework and willing to follow down that road and put them in harm's way. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's yeah. Man, I don't know if I have the words for that. It's, I think that's something another, I mean, another thing to kind of keep tabs on as we move further through the season to see how much that gets serviced in the narrative. Right. 
So after they're done with their back and forth, uh, we get to a new scene where we are back at the bowling alley from the beginning where all the commotion took place. And Wesley arrives at at the pinball machine where Mr. Healy stashed the gun in the beginning. My first note, this seems a little below. I'm sorry. (laughs) I don't know. Hold on. It seems below Wesley's pay grade. (laughs) That might be true. But I will say this, no one has looked more menacing waiting to play pinball in the history of mankind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> His I got next was very menacing. It was very menacing, but it also got me because there's something, like you said, this being below his pay grade, but then him also putting the quarter down. It's it's great. I love this scene, despite it probably not making a lot of sense. <laughs> no, I like I, I couldn't find I, I mean, I even wrote down like I. We, as an audience, have already put Wesley and Healy together, so I don't know what this scene, what purpose this scene necessarily served. Um, you, and I, you know, it, it was a nice menacing moment, but it was just funny. I will say it kind of goes back to what I was asking in the beginning. You know, was that flashback superfluous? My first watch through before I realized that it was set up as a joke is like, okay, maybe this is something where the gun is going to be our through line for this episode. And so I thought, okay, maybe it's going to be important to keep tabs on this gun. And then, of course, it was just for the joke. And then we have Wesley go and pick up the gun. But so far, unless it plays out through the remainder of the season, uh, you, like you said, it, it <laughs> yeah, does seem it, okay out of place, I guess. You wonder, for as much as praise as we've been given for the economical storytelling, right? Mm-hmm. It seems like they get a little bit away from it here with that flashback, you know, getting a little bit flashback happy. Um, in this scene with picking up the gun i guess we'll have to well like i said we'll keep eye on and see if the gun resurfaces in uh, any of the further plot points so after wesley secures the gun and exits the bowling alley we're back at the nelson and murdoch offices and we're finally getting to see matt and foggy reconcile the differences they've been having as they've been trying to figure out what to do with uh mr healy right and you alluded to this in the last uh time we just talked about them where matt is apologizing for not considering um, Foggy and making those decisions. And, you know, uh, and and you kind of see, I think, a sincerity in this realization of what he did. And in and, and that reconciliation, I mean, we get that line from Matt where he's like, you know, I'm sorry. Sometimes we have to do things that we're not proud of. If the first two episodes kind of hammered in that home of getting up after being hit, the epitome of this episode comes from that line specifically because of all the, the ways that we've seen people kind of dealing with the things that they're not proud of. I mean, for example, uh, we had Ben being forced to write that subway piece, even though realistically it's it's what they need to keep the lights on. And we have Matt kind of coming to terms with defending this criminal because he knows that he's going to get him closer to what's going on with Wesley and, and Union Allied. Even with Foggy, at the beginning, wanted to jump on that check when Matt was skeptical and then realizing, okay, this was a mistake, you know? So, so you have that, well, not only do you have that going all the way around, what, what's the next scene? Karen at union allied. Right. And kind of having the regrets of, or starting to wrestle with regrets of how she handled that um, after getting out of prison. Oh, right. And I mean, and she's being, I mean, because she's being offered this choice where I, I guess the lawyers of, I believe at this point we figured out that their new, um, 
entity name is Global Confederate Investments, that they kind of rose from the ashes of Union Allied, they're offering her a substantial amount of money to kind of keep quiet. And she's having to wrestle with this idea of what's better to take the money and stay silent or to expose these people for who they are. Right. And they frame it in such a way where she's at fault. You had this agreement. You can't take this stuff. And she's like, wait, I was tried. You know, I was framed. I was tried to, you know, I was almost murdered. And they said, well, this New York Post, you didn't take it to the police. You didn't go to your boss. You went to the paper, Um, you know, and so they so it was also a clever way on their part to kind of make her feel guilty or look guilty. Oh, yeah. And kind of playing off the sociopathic tendencies of Healy, how cool and, and, and I mean, not cool, how cold was the lawyer from Union Allied? Like, it was almost robotic and off-putting. You know what? What I found interesting about this scene is, like, I should feel bad for Karen, but I have never liked this scene or Karen's actions here. And I had this note. And mainly it was a sense of, like, why are you doing this without your lawyers? Right? Like, why are you keeping this for everything Matt and Foggy's done for you thus far, why are you keeping this from them? I just, I, I never did, I've never been able to reconcile that part of uh, this character's decision. And that's a good point, too, because when the the very first hint that we get from this is when Foggy enters in a couple scenes earlier, and it's kind of very dramatic music zooming in on her slowly as she's looking at some envelopes. And then as soon as they walk in, the music cuts and she puts the paper away. And that you bring up a good question. Why is she hiding this from them? Um, and even the lawyer from Global Confederate Investments ask, you know, you can go and get advice from your lawyers if you want, but I'm sure they'll tell you the same thing. So even he's kind of noticing a lack of, of uh, legal input from them. Oh, yeah. And I don't think, well, I, I don't want to get too far ahead, but I don't know if she ever discussed this with them, like, Hey, you're my lawyers. What do you think? I don't think she ever discussed it with them. The only thing I can think of because, and remember in episode one, she withholds the information from Matt about the, the USB drive. Right. So at this point, is she still trying to hold back how much she knows? I think so. I think so. Maybe, I mean, maybe if we want to reconcile it, maybe even though she's friends with them, maybe she doesn't know she can 100% trust them with that, this stuff. That's the only logical read, I think. Matt knows because he's Daredevil mm-hmm. and he's the one that brought it to the paper, right? At the end of that episode. But yep. because she doesn't know Matt's Daredevil, she has no idea that he knows. Right. From here, we continue Ben's story seeing him as that idealist, right? Like he's still fighting the insurance. You learn a little bit more about his situation. Um, I, I found it interesting Conan as much as I kept like Fisk veiled, keeping veiled who he was trying to take care of. Right. Like, I don't think we knew that it was his wife. Um, or at least I didn't until the very end of that scene, when you kind of get a close up on the wedding ring on the Mm -hmm. counter, you know, um, in, in that hospital bed. They 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 definitely kept it close to the chest until that very very last scene. Uh, I do find it interesting, uh, and I will, I'm going to go ahead and preface by saying I know this is like on the lower end of the scale, but if we want to keep playing with the whole doing things we're not proud of, uh, the main bulk of this scene finds Ben kind of um, 
tagging along with his hospital staff, begging for an extension on their coverage and, and trying to get everything he can to get the, his wife the attention that she needs. And eventually, after a lot of pressuring, he does get her to agree to help him out. And right before he leaves, he places, uh, I think, he, a cheese blintz on her desk. And she says something to the line of, well, hey, if you would have led with this, uh, you know, this would have made it easier. And he said that would have been cheating. I Right, right. I really, really like this because even again, like I said, very small scale, but it shows the kind of character that Ben is that he could have done that bribe to kind of do it in his favor. But that's not the person he is. No. And I, I did like that. How it just it gave you a little bit more insight into his character, uh, not just in the struggles he has in in terms of, and and I even made this thing where he's having it kind of calls back of ha- this choice between what I think the news should be and what they want me to write. He has to make this choice also based on I want to keep my job because I'm taking care of my wife, um, you know, and and essentially again those two goods of what he think is is morally right. Uh, versus in one area work versus his home life and i noticed she made one reference to claire my best nurse is gone you know and i don't know why i'm glad you brought that up because I, I i picked up on that and i wasn't 100 percent sure that was a claire mention but I, I, that's good to hear that you read it that yeah. way yeah that was 100 percent. i took that as a claire mention and great way to kind of like continue rounding out the world and making everything feel connected so after we get that scene where we discover more of Ben's history with his wife and the troubles that he's facing, we're back in the offices with Matt and Foggy. It's late night, and they're kind of going over their strategy for how they're going to handle the case with Healy, and their conversations are interrupted because they're having Wi-Fi troubles. Right, and one of the things I found interesting about that whole bit with the Wi-Fi is it did talk about the money. because They had that short conversation, like, where's the money coming from? And Karen mentioned how... That check, you know, Confederate Global cleared in what, two seconds, she said. And then like immediately after, of course, in the, you know, the tech kind of way, go bang on the router, um, the Wi-Fi started working and it was, it almost coincided with Wi-Fi started working as that check was cleared, which I found interesting. Um, And also there was that one line from Matt where he said, hey, until this is done, no more long lunches. Um, but I got a sense that he was kind of fishing for information more so than like being a boss and saying, Hey, this is important. It, it definitely does stand out a little bit to me. I remember as soon as I watched that scene, I was like, man, that, that feels very cold. And it just kind of like Karen's having a really rough episode this go around because they've had so many comments uh, like at the beginning, whenever Wesley first arrives, they were having that awkward conversation about her duties uh, and then having to deal with the 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 global Confederate uh, lawyers. It's, it's not a good day for Karen. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> So in the very next scene, we get our first scene in the legal courtroom, which, you know, Foggy and Matt are lawyers. So it's finally cool that we get to see them in their element. And the scene opens up with Foggy giving their opening defense for Mr. Healy. My first note, actually, it's all about Wesley, the the watch, right? We get the audio cue of the ticking of the watch. Matt uh, picks him out and Matt knows he's there. This is also the first time where we kind of get a dual audio cue, right? So he picks up the watch and Wesley, but he also picks up the juror at, and simultaneously, uh, which I found interesting because before now it was just like, we're going to focus in on one mm-hmm. thing. 
um, with his super hearing or sense. Kind of like what you said earlier about how as a video game, we're leveling up. I mean, you know, we're leveling up the ability to kind of to take on two audio cues at one time. You know, and, and for me, I guess in that opening trial, this is that's kind of what uh, what stood out. Um, not that Foggy's opening remarks weren't good. I just I, <laughs> I mean, it, I do like that they basically use their opening defense as a great way to define the parameters of of the case. And because, I mean, they, they made a point to realize that they the prosecutors have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that defense was not justified in defending his life. Um, so I like that they're giving us those constraints to work with with Foggy's opener. Um, to play off what you said about Matt uh, using his super hearing, um, it's just another great example of getting to see the superhero side play into the lawyer side as well. Right. And and I, I liked how um, the route the show took was we're not going to try like we're going to make sure these are still upstanding lawyers. Right. We're not going to try to lie. We're going to just up front. This guy killed a person. Right. Um, mm-hmm. We're just going to show that it was self-defense. So, so after we get those opening defense, uh, we kind of get a new scene where after discovering the nervous juror, uh, we see that she is approached by a shady man who is pressuring her to keep it together until after the trial. And then after they're done with enter in Daredevil, this scene felt like an excuse to have Daredevil. And I know that sounds bad the way I say it. And, and maybe it's because of the rewatch and taking notes and being critical, when it was like, what is that juror walking down the street late at night for? Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, the timing feels weird. It it does, you know, and we start to with this scene, I think, get back to a question you asked. Does Daredevil have a no death code? Right. Um, and that was actually the other thing that really stood out about the scene. He didn't want to. It's like he didn't want to fight him. Right. He get him down. He said, don't get up. You know, he got up. So he hit him again to get him down. Um, and then he clearly wanted that the the guy in the alley to fear him um but you didn't get the sense mm-hmm. of at like the end of the rooftop where he was about yeah. to go overboard i do find it funny though that previously because the, the, I, I i made a note earlier whenever they fixed the wi-fi it was concussive maintenance at its finest i like how we get a scene here where basically matt's doing concussive maintenance when things aren't going his way in the trial <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if that was intentional, well, but I, I I do like it. Well, that last punch, didn't he hit him in the ear? Like, what an odd place to hit a person. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean, yeah, like, it's like when you're not taking the threat well, seriously, uh, you're just like, stay down. It, the scene did serve its purpose, though, right? Like, in terms of pushing around the story, mm-hmm. uh, you give the audience what you want, we get Daredevil. And actually, one of the things I noticed is with, with this episode, because this is the first time I think we've seen Daredevil, right? What do you mean? In this episode. Oh, okay. In this episode, yes, yeah, definitely. First yeah, time. Yeah, so this is the first time we've seen Daredevil. Like, they're also kind of keeping that to a minimum, you know, just as much as, like, we're kind of um, having some restraint in, in showing Fisk. You know, Daredevil's not all over the place, Mm-mm. right? Um, and that and that was part of my, my comment of, like, well, here we need an excuse to have, to have Daredevil in the episode. And as much as that was, like, you know, it comes across as a negative, uh, but there's also that element of a positive of like, we're not going to overdo this. You know, we realize character driven shows. Um, 
mm-hmm. is, is the is the better way to go. You know, right. it's not it shouldn't just be action driven alone. So after we get Daredevil swooping in to kind of get the leverage off the nervous juror, the next scene we do find ourselves back in the courtroom. Um, Matt is beginning to give his closing argument, and before he does so, he does pause to kind of comb through the jurors once more to kind of monitor their heart rates to see if everybody is calm. Right. I like the way they did that. Um, where Matt just goes in his own world. Uh, Healy had to ask, what's he doing? You know, you, you see that un- it, there was this recognition that like, you're just kind of staying in there lost in space. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all know what he's doing and I, and I really liked kind of that touch. And it plays into what he opens up with. He goes, sorry, I've been thinking about questions of morality as of late. And the, I mean, the biggest takeaway for me in this scene is like, I, I I like that Matt found a way to do his job while avoiding vouching for Healy's character because he essentially just condemns the question of morality in favor of saying, hey, these are the confines of the law that I'm going to play with. And we are just going to throw out the question of whether or not these people involved are good people. We are going to decide, did they act in accordance to the law? Right. And I also like how he I mean, just on top of that, right, he kind of throws out morality in general. Uh, I mean, because you think about his his speech and he starts talking about the blurred lines. I mean, he's clearly he has that, you know, a judgment of his own making out on the streets. He's clearly foreshadowing Daredevil. Right. He's he's foreshadowing himself. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that in that way, like you I mean, there's some question of his vigilantism moral. Uh, yes, we like it because it makes our superheroes and we love the shows. We love the MCU. Uh, and for the most part, they're vigilantes. And maybe not to the degree that Daredevil and tonally, mm-hmm. uh, but clearly they're vigilantes. You know, so even there, like he has to kind of acknowledge, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of throwing out this black and white uh, sense of morality uh, in order to be able to do the things that I do. So after Matt's closing arguments, we do get a scene where we see Leland and Wesley in a car together and Leland is very concerned about the outcome of the case and Wesley is having to calm him down and assure him that everything's okay. And uh, from there, we do get another scene where we see Karen uh, walking up on somebody who is loading into a U-Haul and we discover that is Mrs. Fisher, the wife of the man who was murdered in episode one. It was interesting as I'm watching this because uh, I mentioned, right, like you don't trust your lawyers yet fully. You know, we, we had that discussion, mm-hmm. um, but she goes to the widow uh, mainly looking for support, right? Did you get the same deal? Did you sign it? Uh, clearly she's looking for support to kind of move forward. Uh, in the end, the widow says like, Hey, I signed it. I recommend you signing it. Um, they had a little back and forth about her husband had that same comment. It just doesn't feel right. Um, you know, and you can see there's some guilt on the widow's part of saying, well, if it doesn't feel right, you need to do something. And now how do I explain that to my kids? Mm-hmm. Um, it was just, it's an interesting way of going about, looking at Karen's decision-making process and what to do here. Oh yeah. I mean, cause it, it, again, to kind of that through line of the theme of things we're not proud of, uh, it's nice that we get this interaction because we do see that Mrs. Fisher is faced with that choice of what's more important. Is it, you know, exposing union allied for the criminals they are, or is it taking care of her kids? And like you said, that, that line was brutal where 
she has to come to that realization that she was encouraging her husband to do the right thing. And now at some point she's going to have to explain that to her kids. And it just, that, that line hit me really right. hard. Well, and the very next scene continues this thread where we, yeah, we pick up at Ben's office, right. And he's on the phone with Shirley again, dealing with insurance, but in walks Karen and ask about the union allied article. Well, Ben thinks she's asking about the subway article and she mentions, no, no, the union allied and, you know, and, and Ben kind of gets that validation of, yes, there's something there. I mean, it's really nice that they pair these two together because we we get to see that the first person that Karen goes with, they made their choice with the the realistic choice. Right. And now that they're pairing Ben and Karen together, like you said, the idealist, it's it's a great way to move their narrative forward. This might be the last time we see Ben this episode, right? It is. Yes, this is their last scene. And it, and. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, like, doesn't he kind of have, like, a, a very hopeful look on his face once he realized what Karen's there for? Oh, yeah, because, well, I mean, figure what, he wanted to do the Union Allied story, um, going off of the very first scene where he was introduced with the with the Italian mob guy. Um, you know, he's trying to flesh out that story, and now in walks the, someone ready yeah. to talk. The next puzzle piece. Yeah. Um, Can I... I, Can I do a quick side note? Yeah, go ahead. I think Ben Eric in the comic actually worked at the Daily Bugle. Really? Yeah. I'm completely unfamiliar with uh, the character, so that's actually kind of cool to know. Yeah, I think he worked at the Daily Bugle, and the reason why they couldn't do that, um, clearly, right, Spider-Man, Sony writes mm-hmm. uh, at the time. Well, I guess still sort of now, but but yeah, so they had a, there was that character, but they couldn't use the Daily Bugle. Because mm-hmm. even, even when you see that that newspaper article where it's like the battle of new york the logo is very daily bugle-esque but uh, i i never put that together uh that of course they couldn't use it because of the rights so after ben's final scene we are back at the trial where we're getting the verdict and uh matt's focusing on wesley's watch again before realizing that there is a new nervous heartbeat of a juror uh having that slow realization that unfortunately the jury has been rigged once more Right. And, you know, Healy complimented Matt. Hell of a speech. Hell of a speech, Matt. God, he's so slimy. He is. He is so slimy. And clearly, like, he knew he was he was getting um, he was getting off. One of the things that I've I struggled with was like Foggy was really clear. The D.A. will retry, you know, and Matt was like, no, they're not. Will they, Mr. Healy? And I guess then there came the line that was a hell of a speech. One of the things that I couldn't quite place. So you had the juror who Matt was like, okay, they're hung. They're not going to get a conviction because of this juror. But for him to say that ain't going to happen, the DA mm-hmm. retrying mm-hmm. it, that means the DA had to be in Wesley's pocket too, right? Because outside of that, there's no other right. connection between them and the DA. I mean, I mean, even from the get-go, I mean, Wesley, not Wesley, uh, Healy has basically been calling the shots. Like even back into the opening scenes, where they were trying to like, all right, this is the defense we're going to take. He's like, no, we're going to do it this way. I'm going to take this and it'll be fine. Like he knew from the get go that, that he was safe and assured. Right. But it just, it just, the DA is, is such a hope high profile DA assistant DA, whoever you want to have for a show, such a high profile person. It, it just makes me wonder why that wasn't explored at all or a bigger connection intentionally made than just that quickly implied interaction right there. Could it be it's a connection they didn't want to pull unless they absolutely had to? 
I would say my guess is probably yes, that's mm-hmm. the case since it's episode three. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to pull that card yet. Um, but just in that interchange, because it's implied, I was just like, well, <laughs> just bring it up. Um, I do have a question for you, though. Uh, do you think that Matt, would he have done anything different if he knew that it was going to be rigged again? Or did he give his defense with the assurance that he believed things were going to be fair? I think that's the other thing I found interesting is I think he believed it was going to be fair. And I think he mm-hmm. gave that closing speech with the expressed intent to do his job as a lawyer to, mm-hmm. you know, put up the best defense possible. Like he had full intention of winning that case. Yeah. There's a slight element as well of like, well, they're hung, which means, yeah, they got to him, but also it means you did your job too, <laughs> you, you know? And, and mm-hmm. so there was that, there was that weird, um, slight disconnect as well. Um, I mean, unless it's a disappointment of like, oh, I didn't convince them mm-hmm. to to acquit, so to speak, right? Because uh, either way, acquit or the hung jury, and it's a you know it's a mistrial, and the DA has to do all that again. Yeah, um, you got your client off. Yeah. Um. So after they after the trial is hung, we do see that Mister Healy is exiting through a back alley. Uh, he's gathering his things and loading into a car, and once again we are uh, brought in a scene with daredevil right um you know what i i enjoyed this fight scene um it's interesting because you you ended with the the last episode with the hallway fight right i think they did a good job of not trying to you know come over the top Mm -hmm. and like oh we got to outdo this um but they also didn't go so far in the other direction where it was like oh this was disappointing after seeing the end of the other episode yeah it's it, it's a great reset without losing too much of the stakes that we've already gathered because like we saw in the beginning mr healy is an incredibly adept fighter and one of the things that i, I wanted to ask you are we to infer that healy picked up on matt superhearing because i don't know if you saw there was that scene where healy gets knocked down he picks up a pipe and a bucket and then as he's getting up he throws the bucket to the side and then immediately charges uh matt with a with the lead pipe and i thought that was if if that's how it's supposed to be read i thought it was cool that he was able to pick up on that so quickly yeah honestly i think i was going to ask you the same thing because <laughs> cool, i did I, I did my rewatch right and and because they slow down on that audio cue right and then i and i think i went back and saw that a second time where did he hit the bucket or just throw it. Like I, 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 I saw him just throw it. He just threw it. Cause, cause like the second time through, I thought he actually both hit it with the pipe before he threw it. Like, like uh, even more so to emphasize trying to throw him off, you know? Yeah. Like he, he knew like either instinctively or somehow he knew distracting with audio was the way to go. Yeah. And I'm wondering if that was something that he picked up on, or if we're supposed to kind of make the the guess that like he was prepared for, since you know clearly Wesley and Madame Gao, Nobu, all of them had that conversation, right about That's this very man, true. you know. And if words getting around about him, I'm wondering if he knew that already, or just either way, it was it was very clever on his part. Yeah, I like that. That actually makes a lot of sense, uh, especially pairing off with Karen, not Karen, what Claire said 
last episode about how you're getting known. It's yeah, that's a that's a great read. I like that. Yeah. Now I found it interesting that he was able to get Healy to talk mm-hmm. um, for as sociopathic, as psychopathic as we've said all episode that Healy is. That the idea that he was able to get Healy to break. Um, I don't want to say it was unrealistic. Uh, I mean, it, it, I think it helps reinforce how formidable Daredevil is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, I was a little surprised that not just that Healy broke, but that Healy had a name yeah. to give. It, it's it's not only that he broke, it's in the way he broke that. It felt a little weird. Um, like, I like... Th- I like the idea of the fear that came after he broke, but it kind of felt a little forced to me. Well, would yeah, like I liked the fear because it kind of reinforced how much you have to fear Fisk, right? Mm-hmm. But I mean, if I remember right, he was cutting with that broken glass at his throat, you know. Mm-hmm. So he had to have valued his own life in that moment to break. Um, and then to turn around and kill himself in such a gruesome way, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it just, it, it just, it just doesn't to, to think about it after the fact in this manner, there, there's some, mm-hmm. some issues. I do want to say, um, regarding the way that he impaled himself, uh, you know, sometimes I we kind of keep saying like, oh, this is definitely tonally darker than any other MCU show. And I always find myself kind of reexamining the statement we're making because, you know, in the first Captain America, we see a man get shredded through like some engine propellers. Um, and in the Avengers, Loki rips a guy's eyeball out. And, you know, we've kind of carried on. This scene made me realize, no, we're totally safe in saying that it's totally different because that impaling scene was brutal. Like I openly cussed as I was watching the like the episode. Like I was like, oh shit, like really like I was so caught off guard. Well, and, and for them to linger on it, right? Yeah. Yeah, they come back and they do the other side to where you see his other eye wide open and the blood come through his nose. And then you kind of have that side angle where it's like that's clearly holding him up. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise he's fallen over that's brutal so this I, I really wish i would have wrote down the article uh that i got this because i was trying to do now after mr healy exited i was trying to like to do some research to see if he was like an established villain or character in the daredevil universe kind of like a um like a victor zaz type character right, in batman right. i was just trying to see if there was that and in my googling it brought up a article where it was questioning um do you feel the violence is gratuitous in Daredevil? Because that 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 really caught me off guard, and I, I'm curious to see what you think. I'd have to think about that. Yeah. Let, how about how about we start next episode talking about that? Okay. Yeah. And and, and the only reason why is because part of me has just and wants to think about it is I just have to. I, I've always just kind of accepted that oh this is totally dark even in 2015 when it came out and everybody knew that, Oh, this is going to be tonally darker. And it was almost kind of like, well, we're accepting that. Um, but that's a good question. I, mm-hmm. I, I want, I want time to think about that. Yeah. And, uh, in the interim, I will go ahead and make sure that I find that article I found so that I can specifically quote it in the next episode. 
But yeah, I mean, to, to kind of play off what you were saying, like the fear that Healy had, uh, the the driving motivation for him to take his life that way is because of Wilson Fisk. And I think they have done such an incredible job up to this point building the persona of Wilson Fisk that leads into our very final scene where we arrive in an art gallery and we see this coordinator who's kind of like perusing in and out of the exhibits. And eventually we land on this large imposing man in front of a art piece. And this is our first glimpse, actual glimpse, not just the, the, the cufflinks of Wilson Fisk. Well, and they start with the cufflinks and move him way up. You know what? And mm-hmm. even still that, that theme of restraint, he didn't have much dialogue, did he? No, he has one line. Right. And it's, and it's, God, it's that, it's that, what's it saying? Well, well, how does this make me feel? It makes me feel alone. Yeah, because she, she kind of like opens up about how, um, you know, art isn't about what's there. It's about what it makes you feel. What does this make you feel? And he goes, it makes me feel alone. And I, it's so amazing that our first introduction to him is such a vulnerable state after we've spent three episodes with his metaphorical finger tipping the scales of so many situations in this show. And and even in this episode in particular, where we've seen various different ways that people are coping with their moral dilemmas, and we finally get to the one person who's at the top of it all, and even he feels alone. I just right. Grew. You don't you don't get some kind of menacing line. You don't get this overbearing oh crap kind of moment. You get honest vulnerability. I'm so I'm so excited. I forgot how much I loved Wilson Fisk. Yeah. If you don't mind, my concluding thoughts real quick. Yeah. We ended last week's episode of me being so excited for episode three, and thinking back to through this episode. I feel like or this podcast episode, I feel like I talked bad a lot about this episode, um, but I, I did. I still enjoy it. Episode three is still because I love Wesley. Uh, we still get more of that. And we get this questioning of Wesley. Uh, ben Eric is such a fun character um, to, to throw into the mix, um, you know, and you you continue that theme on this duality of letting the devil out or this idealist with Matt. There's a lot packed into this episode, even for a few scenes mm-hmm. that we kind of wrote off pretty quickly. Yeah. And I mean, because I, I mean, we I was equally excited with you. Like I it's been a really long time since I've seen because I haven't watched this since it debuted. And it's a testament to how powerful rabbit in a snowstorm, just that phrase alone how powerful that end scene is that it's been cemented in our imagery. Cause like it, I will say this, what I remembered was different. I thought we got more Wilson Fisk, but for how little we get, it's, it's such a, a solidifying uh, memory. Right. It's just, well, and again, we're watching it now week to week to record these episodes. Right. Um, you know, unless you're listening later and binge watching the episodes and our podcast, which uh, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. But we, but, and we've mentioned this before, the binge watching nature of Netflix just five years ago and from, you know, this 2020 now to 2015, um, while it's such a small dose of Fisk, you're going right into the next episode, most likely. Yeah. Which to play off, I was thinking about this earlier this week. It's going to be really interesting when we finally catch up to what I haven't seen and being forced to go week to week. Oh man, I... I'm excited about that. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> hey, another side note, I know I mentioned this to you. Um, that rabbit in a snowstorm painting was just sold. 
um, in 2019, August 2019, for just over six thousand dollars on a, a on the Marvel auction props. That's uh, awesome. Website. Yeah. Sorry, and I didn't mean to cut you off on the on the thing, but yes, no, I'm you're, you're fine. To I catch up to your to where you haven't seen. Oh yeah, me too. Because uh, I did I did kind of look ahead on the episode list. I I because Netflix still has it saved from where I got to. I only watched four episodes of season two. So that's I'm gonna need to look yeah and see. And, and see what those are uh, but you have a lot lot left i know but uh yeah that that wraps up episode three rabbit in a snowstorm and uh yeah any any final things to add i, I will say this because we did talk about this a little bit uh before we started recording i feel like i remember reading how back in 2015 how the way that the the binge worthiness of daredevil worked is that the narrative worked in two episode chunks. So for example, when we did episode one and two, that felt like a, a, an opening and a closing of a story set. And then now we're in episode three and it feels like we're getting a lot of new storylines opening up. Of course, we're meeting Ben, uh, the NDA, the, uh, the furthering of, of Wesley and his relationship with Nelson and Murdoch. Um, it, it definitely felt like it was opening up a lot of threads for us to hopefully, I assume, explore in episode four. Right. And I assume if you're planning out, um, you know, if you're a showrunner and planning out how you want your episodes to run, knowing that they're all going to drop at the same time, you're kind of you have more room to experience to, you know, explore some characters in a plot point and pair episodes together like that in terms of pushing your story. Mm -hmm. It feels like a nice cadence to, to write it out. It does. It does. So yeah, that, that that does that. So we do like to end with a final question for you all to chime in with if you'd like to uh, to answer. Jude, is there any character in the MCU that you would like to see get their own Disney Plus show? Uh, Luis and his running crew from Ant-Man and Ant-Man and the Wasp. In particular, Ant-Man and the Wasp when they go into business. I just love to see them... Uh, as, what is it? X-Con is what it, what it is. And yes. And the secure... Yes, and the security systems. Uh, that just it just seems like a really good twenty minute sitcom show. Oh yeah, uh, I mean you can almost kind of do it like a, like a procedural, like a different break in a week where they're having to find ways to to build a system that works specifically for their needs. Oh yeah, I like that. Yeah, very very uh, very episodic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> for me, I think, and I I completely am borrowing this from the Marvel Studios subreddit. I saw a similar idea. Where they wanted to do more, uh, like a, a Disney Plus show of all the Guardians of the Galaxy characters. But for me, I would love to see like a pre-Guardians of the Galaxy movie, Rocket and Groot series. I, I do think it would be very similar to The Mandalorian, so that might be hard. But I know there's good comic runs of exploring the relationship between Groot and Rocket that I think would just be wonderful for a Disney Plus show. Right. And they, they play well off each other, you know, um, as, as two characters, especially that first movie right away when you see them. Um, it's just so natural of a fit. Uh, so well written mm -hmm. by James Gunn. Um, and forgive me, I know he wasn't the only writer for Guardians of the Galaxy, the first one. Uh, like you mm -hmm. like the second one and I'm forgetting that name. Uh, but I, I think you're right. That would be such a fantastic show. Yeah, I, it would probably be. I don't know. I was trying to think of this because when I was thinking about it, it's like what would be more expensive to animate Rocket and Groot 
and then just have the voice actors or would it be harder to pull in? Because we kind of discussed this earlier, like what would be more expensive animating that or having uh, Samuel L. Jackson come play a Nick Fury series? Honestly, I feel like the animation. Really? Yeah. Because you're animating two characters. I I just feel like because you're animating two characters. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could be wrong, but that's my guess. Yeah. You know, off of that, it would be nice to see um, a show with, if we're talking about pairings, um, Thor and Rocket, just the two of them. That would be really good. Especially all the, the back and forth scenes they had in Infinity War. Like, you got to see both of them open up in ways they never opened up before. Right. Yeah, I'd like that. I will say this. I, my my reflexive answer to this question, which I didn't go with because it's not a specific character, but I would love a Disney Plus series, even if it's like a mini series, like we don't need multiple seasons, exploring the snap. Like what that five-year gap was like for people, I think would be such a fascinating mini series. You're right. It really would. Um, and you could just hone in on one or two. You know what? Actually... I mentioned Luis, you could probably hone in on um, some side characters from another movie and follow them to the snap. Let's just assume they didn't get snapped. Um, Comes to mind would be Scott's ex-wife and her new husband, you know, uh, following them at what happened to the snap. Because I I don't remember if they were snapped or not. Mm Um, or blipped, depending on which movie you want to go with. Uh, but you're right, that that would be really fun too. Yeah. But that's going to do it. So if you'd like to chime in, uh, let us know uh, if you want to answer that question, or if you'd like to discuss Daredevil Season 1, Episode 3, Rabbit in a Snowstorm, you can add us on Twitter at Know, or you can tag us on Instagram at Know, or finally, you can write us an email for any thoughts that you may have at Know at gmail.com. And if you want to help out the podcast, uh, we'd appreciate it. Go ahead and subscribe to this and uh, leave a review of, of what you think. Um, that would definitely help us out. And you can find us on any of the any of the places you find your podcast. Yeah. Share it with a friend. Thank you so much for doing this, Jude. Ah, thank you. I'm looking forward to the next one. We'll see you all next week. Okay, pause. So... From there, uh, we're going to get that scene where Leland and Wesley are driving the car. I personally don't have any notes. Um, do you have anything? Or I should literally we... wrote Leland and Wesley in the very next line. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll, I'll say I just jotted down in my notes in tag. Like you asking that question and me saying what it is and you laughing. <laughs> Uh...